Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that we can gather together today. We thank you for uh, your provision in uh, this meeting space, Father. We pray that as we uh, spend this time together, Lord, that you would build up our affections for you. Lord, we think about the things that are happening in the coming weeks. We think about our membership class. Father, we pray that that would be a time where uh, the, the truth of who you are, of your plan for your church and how that plays out into the Great Commission, Lord, would be an encouragement to those who will be there. Lord, we praise you for uh, new members. We praise you for the 31 people that we brought into membership just last night at our members meeting. We praise you for the way that you've been working in their lives. And I pray, Lord, that we would come alongside them as brothers and sisters and that we would run this race together for your glory. We think about the, the ladies' time of, of fellowship. Lord, would that be a sweet time of encouragement, uh, of uh, getting to know one another, building relationships, uh, and pointing one another to the hope that is in you. And Lord, we pray as well for our picnic. Uh, Lord, may that just be a, a sweet time of fellowship. And Lord, as we gather in the park, I pray that our gathering there would be a bold witness to we see so many from every tribe, tongue, and nation coming together, sharing food. May that be a bold witness to those who will be there. And Father, I do pray that as we now turn our attention to the preaching of your word, Father, give us humble hearts, give us ears to listen. Father, I pray that you would use me. Father, I confess how I am feeling inadequate for this task today. But Father, we know that your grace is sufficient, that your power is made perfect in weakness. And we pray that the power of your word through your spirit would go forth today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So this afternoon, we're starting a new four-part series looking at the book of Malachi. Now, as a matter of interest, before you knew that we were going to be doing this series, how many here have studied the book of Malachi, have sat in, under a sermon series in the book of Malachi, or have even read the book of Malachi? Just a quick raise of hands. How many? A few, not too many. That's okay. That's not a problem at all. Um, the, the truth is, as, as one commentator put it, the book of Malachi is one biblical book that receives very little attention, apart from the occasional use of a line or two exhorting tithing. As we begin to look at the short letter, it's only 55 verses. Some of the questions that we begin to come to mind are, well, who was Malachi? When was this letter written? Why was it placed at the end of the Old Testament? And we will spend the first part of our time together today just thinking through some of these questions. Uh, we won't necessarily go into great depth, uh, but I would encourage you, if you haven't already done so, to spend the time in your community groups or with other brothers and sisters and just study the, the background to this book. It is really interesting. It's, it's amazing to see how it all fits together with some of the, the other prophets um, and it would be a really encouraging time as well. I do, however, want to give us a, a brief background to the book uh, before we dive into it. I'll be honest. That as we go through this background, uh, I'm going to just let you know that there are men who have spent many, many, many more hours than I have and written many, many, many more pages than I have on this book. And they have just uh, provided some very, very helpful um information around 
the book of Malachi. So I'm going to share some of those things. I'm not claiming this for myself. This is not my work. This is their work, and I praise God for them. But I do hope that this would be helpful for each of us here today as well. Uh, well one of the first things we know is that, unlike many of the other prophetic writings, we get no clear introduction as to who Malachi is. In fact, the name Malachi occurs only once in the whole Bible. This book focuses much more on the message of Malachi rather than the person who is delivering it. But what we do see is that it is God who is speaking. In fact, we see this in about 47 of the 55 verses. Generally, it's accepted that this book was written somewhere between 420 and 440 BC, although some suggest that it may have been closer to 460. But as commentator Alan Ross notes, when it comes to Malachi, he was the last of the prophets to write, and his writing predicted the next great prophet who was to come to prepare the way of the Lord, John the Baptist. But we must remember that when we say he was a post-exilic prophet, we must note that he actually came a good hundred years after Zechariah and Haggai, and almost a generation after Ezra. Malachi is the last of the 12 minor prophets, but those 12 prophets stretched over a period of 400 years. Now, as we look at uh, the, the prophets in the, in the Old Testament, we, we know that most of the prophets lived and prophesied in days of, of change and political upheaval. But Malachi and his contemporaries were living in a fairly uneventful waiting period. God seemed to have almost forgotten his people. They were enduring poverty, foreign domination in this little province of Judah. Zerubbabel and Joshua, whom Haggai and Zechariah had indicated as God's chosen men for the new age, had died. The temple had been completed, but nothing momentous had occurred to indicate that God's presence had returned to fill it with glory as Ezekiel had indicated would happen. The day of miracles had passed with Elijah and Elisha. The religious duties carried on, but without enthusiasm. Where was the God of their fathers? Did it really matter whether one served him or not? Generations were dying without receiving the promises and many were losing their faith. Malachi's prophecy is particularly relevant to the many waiting periods in human history and in the lives of individuals. This book enables us to see the strains and temptations of, some, of such times, the imperceptible abrasion of faith that ends in cynicism because it has lost touch with the living God. Even more important, he shows the way back to a genuine, enduring faith in the God who does not change, who invites men to return to him and never forgets those who respond. Malachi must not be passed over as just another historical collection of messages from ancient Israel's prophets. It is the word of God, true and trustworthy in all that it says and timelessly relevant in its admonitions and its warnings. These messages are addressed to all who profess to be the people of God, some of whom truly believe and others who actually do not believe. But the messages are applicable to everyone because they come with the warning of the final judgment that will separate the righteous believers from the unbelievers. With those kind of background things in mind, I just want to give us a quick 
overview, seven little statements that kind of provide the overview of the book as a whole. The first one is that the prophet has to remind the people who are living in troubling times that God's everlasting love chose them and would see them through the difficulties of this life. Secondly, the prophet admonishes the people to replace cheap, contemptible, and meaningless ritual worship that uh, with with sorry, replace cheap, contemptible, and meaningless ritual with worship that honors God. The prophet denounces ministers for ruining the ministry by causing people to stumble in the faith because of their failure to teach the word of the Lord correctly and impartially. The prophet condemns those who profane the holy covenant of marriage by divorcing their legitimate spouses and marrying pagan unbelievers. The prophet answers the foolish charge that God was not just in dealing with sinners by declaring that no one can withstand the imminent coming of the Lord to purge sin and judge the wicked. The prophet rebukes the people for robbing God and challenges them to trust his faithfulness by faithfully bringing their tithes and offerings. The prophet instructs the people to heed the warnings of the coming messengers to repent before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes when he will separate the righteous from the wicked. So Lord willing, over the next few weeks, these are the topics that we will be considering. These are some of the things that we'll be looking at as we spend time in Malachi. Now while uh, chapter 1 verse 1 to chapter 2 verse 9 was read for us by Dr. Brown earlier, we're just going to be looking at chapter 1 today. There is much for us to take away. Um, and next week we will aim to look at chapter 2 verse 1 to chapter 2 verse 16. So as we consider chapter 1, we're going to be looking at two points. So if you're taking notes, these are going to be the two points that are going to serve as our outline this afternoon. The first point is this, the Lord's love, and that is in verses 1 to 5. The second point we're going to look at is the Lord's charge, and that is in verses 6 to 14. The Lord's love and the Lord's charge. Let's look at our first point, the Lord's love. Verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now this first verse serves as a reminder to the readers of this letter and ultimately to us of where these words are coming from. They were not just the, the personal opinion of some guy, but rather this was a message from the Lord God himself. This is the very word of the Lord. We should also know that the phrase, the oracle of the word of the Lord, is used exclusively after the Babylonian exile. And quick trivia, it only occurs in one other book in the Bible. Anyone want to take a guess where that is? Quick clue, it was the book that we started off the year with. Zechariah, yes. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 1 and Zechariah chapter 12 Verse 1. Those are the only places that this uh, phrase actually occurs. Now the word oracle literally means a burden or a load, suggesting that the weight or burden of this message, that this message that is about to be received, that's about to come, is quite a heavy one. Which, as we will see today and in uh, next week as well, is very much the case. 
So we have this post-exilic message to the nation of Israel, a message that will be a weighty, burdensome message. However, as we see in the very next words, this message should still be comforting to us. It should serve as a reminder for those that are hearing this message, including us. And this message should be the theme. This, this, this very next phrase should be the theme or the statement from which this whole book is viewed. Almost like this umbrella statement for this book. And it is this verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you. The way the original Hebrew verb form is used here is not just to say, I've loved you and that's it. I, I, I once loved you and now we're done. No, no. It is, I have loved you and I still do. God has always loved his people. Throughout history, he has loved them. We get hints of that throughout the Old Testament. We just have to look at the work that God has done in their lives. We think of some of his comments, Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Hosea 11, 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So we have this, this beautiful statement of, I have loved you. I still do. But what do we see? Rather than responding with a, a posture of humility, responding appropriately with a, an amen or a falling to knees in worship, the people respond with the first objection that we see in our text today. How have you loved us? I mean, why would this be the response? I mean, let's, let's just remember, yeah, right? Things for Israel hadn't quite gone as they had expected. They went into exile because of their sin. They had returned from exile. The temple had been rebuilt. Sacrifices were being made. God's people were seemingly back where they belong. But things just weren't going according to plan. The people were struggling. They were being oppressed. The presence of the Lord had not returned to the temple. God, none of our plans seem to be working out. God, how have you loved us? Look at our situation. This is not how it's supposed to be. I wonder as you sit here this afternoon, how many of us can relate to, to similar sentiments, right? And what are the circumstances that you find yourself in where things just aren't going according to plan. Perhaps you're still looking for a job. It's been months. And yet, no matter how much you pray, how much effort you put in, nothing seems to be coming up. The bills just seem to be piling up. You're crying out to God, but nothing seems to change. God, how can this be? You sit here and you read these words, I loved you. I still do. But you say, God, how have you loved me? Or perhaps it's something else. Perhaps you're single. You're still longing for a spouse. You've been praying and praying, but the more you pray, the longer this wait seems to be. Or maybe it's you're wanting a child, or, or maybe it's a friend that you've been sharing the gospel with, but there seems to be no change in their life. Their pregnancy test continues to come back negative. Maybe it's a health condition for you or a loved one. You're crying out to the Lord for good health, for God to restore you, for God to restore your friend, for God to restore your family member. You're crying out. 
This is not how it's supposed to be. You hear the words of this text, I have loved you, says the Lord, I still do. But you look and things are unchanging. Health continues to deteriorate. You say, how have you loved me, Lord? The plans that you had in your mind of how life was going to play itself out. Getting married, having children, having a great job where you could help your family, set up a retirement fund. You've been faithfully coming before the Lord, presenting your prayers, presenting them to Him. Lord, I thought you had a plan to prosper and not to harm me. You hear these words, I have loved you, says the Lord. I still do. But you look at your situation and you say, how have you loved me, Lord? Malachi quickly moves to give a response. In a sense, he gives them proof. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Well, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Malachi makes reference to these two brothers, the ones through whom God showed his electing love, showing the Israelites how they have done nothing to deserve God's love, that he chose them. As we think of this account of Jacob and Esau, we are reminded of the promise that the older would serve the younger, that there was nothing specific, nothing special about Jacob and by extension Israel that would cause them to be chosen above anyone else. But we see God remind his people of his love. We see him remind them of his patience, not treating them as their sin, their continued rebellion deserved. And this reference is to be understood in light of God's electing love. The fact that Jacob was chosen, loved, meant that Esau was rejected or hated. Rejection being part of the exercise of choice. Therefore, any kind of hatred towards Esau is not implied. But what we see here where Esau, that is Edom's rebellion, siding with the enemies of God, is met with a heritage that is left to the jackals in the desert. By contrast, the continued rebellion by Israel that resulted in their exile being put out of the promised land is met with God who continues to uphold the covenant, the promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God has loved his people. He still does. We see it in, the, in Deuteronomy 4.37, 7, 7 to 8, 10, 15. We are shown that God's people should love him in return. Deuteronomy 5.10, uh, 6.5, and 13. And everything that is about to follow in the rest of our text and in the coming weeks is to be viewed in the light of this choosing of the electing love of God. He is reminding them of that. I mentioned earlier some situations that you sitting here today might be facing. Where, may, where you may be asking, how have you loved me, Lord? Friends, let, let me just encourage you just to, to pause. Look back at your life over the last week, over the last month, over the past year. Look at the grace 
Look at the love. Look at the patience. Look at the mercy that God has shown you. The same God who is making these promises to Israel. The same God who is reminding them of His goodness and His faithfulness that they didn't earn or deserve is the same God who has been sustaining you, who has provided for you, who has cared for you, who is saying to you, I chose you. I have loved you and I still do. Friends, do not lose hope. This brings us to our second point, the Lord's charge. Look there at verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? This section begins with another statement and another objection, a charge that is directed at the priests, and we'll see why in a moment. Now, considering this opening statement, we recognize that in some way, there's, there's some, something that is actually quite obvious. A son honors his father, a servant his master. And this would be expected. It points us to the fifth commandment, honor your mother and your father. This is a statement that would be supported, right? Most of the priests would have likely had sons themselves. They would expect their sons to honor them. The servant would have to honor his master because he belonged to him through the right of purchase. If then God is a father, where is his honor? This father-son relationship between Israel and God is suggested at the beginning of Israel's deliverance out of captivity in Exodus chapter 4. It says, thus says the Lord, Israel is my first born son there would be no doubt that the people of israel believed this after all they were the chosen nation but it's not just honor as a father but where is the fear that the lord deserves as a master let's not forget god is the ultimate father he is the ultimate master as this charge continues we see it who is being directed towards a son honors his father and a servant his master If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. It's been directed towards the priests, the ones who were charged with guarding the tabernacle, performing sacrifices on Israel's behalf, leading the nation in holiness. They were to be the authoritative teachers to the nation. They were to be the example to the people. Yet God is calling them out. Instead of honoring the Lord, instead of showing reverent fear as their master, they despise him. The idea here is one of just deep disgust. I am the Lord, I deserve honor, yet you show me, you show deep disgust towards my name. As we saw earlier, instead of an appropriate response of repentance, of showing honor, The author answers on their behalf, quoting what they said, and we see a jump to their own defense. But you say, how have we despised your name? God, are you saying that we are despising your name? You're saying this will prove it. Show us where. We think you must be mistaken. After all, we're doing what you called us to, right? Look at the response, verse 7. By offering polluted food upon my altar. 
Once again, we see this charge being directed towards them. And instead of repentance, we're getting the more and more objections. But even as we, we look at this, on first reading, as we see this kind of backwards and forwards between uh, the, the charge from the Lord that, that Malachi is bringing to, to the priests, as we see in this, this backwards and forwards, it, it, it could kind of feel like, well, surely it's just two people with, with different perspectives, different views on the same thing, right? Just, they, they're just on different pages. It could just be a, a simple case of a, a misunderstanding, of someone just feeling that they were doing what they were supposed to do. After all, it's not like they weren't offering sacrifices. It's really not their fault. I mean, they were just trying to do what, what, what they thought was right. Surely if their intentions were in the right place, and that's all that matters, right? But here's the thing. When it comes to what they were meant to be doing, it was not a case of just try something and hope for the best or just do the bare minimum. The priests had been given very clear, very direct instructions on how they were to go about offering sacrifices. And these were to be passed down, not only in practice, but they had the Torah. But by doing things their way, they were despising the very name of God. Even though their intentions may have been good. In their very actions, they were saying that the Lord's table may be despised. How? Verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? As one commentator points out, well, how have they despised the name? Well, sinful attitudes are most often secret faults. Secret, that is from the consciousness of the sinner, but they are not excused on that ground. Friends, as you sit here this afternoon, what secret faults are, are true of you? I don't know what that may be. Perhaps it's gossip. Perhaps it's slander. You have concerns about someone, but instead of talking to that person, you have spoken about that person to someone else. Perhaps under the guise of concern, or maybe someone has brought a concern to you about someone, and instead of encouraging this person to go back to that person that they have this concern about, you're now carrying their concern on, for them on, on their behalf. Your intentions may be genuine and good, but it is sin. God has given us a way to, to handle things through His Word. He gave the priests the appropriate ways that they were to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. He gave them clear instruction on what kind of animals to use. As far as the priests were concerned, they were just doing what they were called to do. But just look at the book of Leviticus. We have the entire sacrificial system outlined. What animals were for what sacrifice, the kind of condition that they were supposed to be in. Referen even the, the, uh, the animal's condition, reference is, is made to that back in Exodus. They had the word of God and they as the priest should know the correct way to do things. But even here in one sense, there is, there is some common understanding of what was appropriate and what wasn't. When it comes to God, these are how they are to, supposed to do things. There's no chance to claim ignorance. 
He even goes so far as to give them a human example. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Now remember, who's making this statement? Who is making this claim? It's not the governor. It's not the president. It's not the king. It is the Lord of hosts who is speaking. The one who reigns over heaven and earth, over all armies, earthly and spiritual. You wouldn't dare cheat a governor. You wouldn't dare bring a a bad sacrifice to the ruler. And yet you are willing to cheat the Lord of hosts. Friends, we need to pause and consider our own actions. How easy is it for us to justify ourselves, to justify our actions with good intentions or perhaps even with lack of knowledge? This is why knowing the Word of God is so important. This is why we study the Word. This is why we seek to preach through entire books of the Bible, to study the whole counsel of God even though our attitudes may be largely hidden from us the actions that they lead to the fruit that they produce is there for everyone to see the prophet continues verse 9 in verse 9 having just considered how the priests have been profaning the Lord's name despising the name of the Lord of hosts He now somewhat ironically says, Now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. He's saying, you bring these defiled, corrupt gifts to God. Considering that a governor will not show you any favor. And yet, you expect God to be gracious to you? It would be foolish to think that God's response up to this point would be any different. Verse 10, Oh, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, My name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For now, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Now, the doors that are being referred to here are most likely the entrance to the court of the priests where the tables for sacrifice were situated. Having just read up to this point, you could almost feel the the exasperation here. Oh, if there were just one person, one person who among all of you would shut the doors to this place so that all these sacrifices would not be done in vain. As it is, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord. I will not accept an offering from your hand. The reality is that there would be no one. No one would have been so bold as to shut those doors. However, the consequences that we are seeing here is that the Lord takes no pleasure in these sacrifices. He's not going to accept them. He refuses. A stark contrast to what we see in Leviticus, where with the prescribed offerings that God gave his people, there was this pleasing aroma to the Lord. But... 
while there was no one who would do this, we know of one who would ultimately come, who not only honored his father and obeyed him perfectly, who when it came to sacrifices, offered himself up as the perfect sacrifice. Christ came to do what the priests had failed to do. Christ came to live the life that we cannot live and took the punishment and judgment that we deserve on himself. His sacrifice was not in vain. It was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And as Christ was raised up on the third day, having died on the cross, having been buried, his sacrifice was completely accepted by God. And our hope, friends, is not to, to try with good intentions, to try to do better as long as our, our heart motives are good. No, no, we, we, we can't try claim ignorance. We were reminded of that just last week in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. We are without excuse. Our hope is to put our trust in this perfect sacrifice. Not only can you do that today and be raised to new life, but friends, if you are a Christian, this gives us incredible hope. It gives us incredible hope for the life that we are living right now. <coughs> a reminder that God has loved us. We look to the cross. We are reminded that God has loved us and he still does. As we continue in verse 11, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God is great. His name is the name that is above every name. We saw back, that, we saw back in verse 5 that the people will see that God will be great, great beyond the border of Israel. In fact, four times in this chapter, the prophet proclaimed God as great. In verse 5, as I just mentioned, twice here in verse 11 and once more in verse 14 that we'll look at in just a moment. Despite the failure of the priests, despite the way that the name of the Lord had been profaned. God's name is great. It will be great. It's going to continue to be great among the nations and is ultimately not dependent on the priests. Now, as we think of what that means for us, that, that should not be seen as an excuse. That it doesn't matter what we do. That it, it doesn't matter what others do. Ultimately, God's going to sort it out, right? It, it's all on Him. It could be easy for us to, to believe that. The idea that it doesn't matter what we're doing as, as long as we're trying. As long as our intentions are good. After all, God's name being proclaimed to the nations ultimately doesn't depend on me which in, in one sense is true but we need to remember those who have been set aside as those who have been raised from death to life how we live what we do what we say has bearing it matters in a time when more and more disdain is being shown towards those that hold to the christian faith how we live how we conduct ourselves how we engage as a church speaks volumes uh, this is in no way trying to 
to, to say that we're, we're trying to be legalistic, that we're somehow trying to, to gain favor from the Lord. Now, rather, we're living out of obedience to one who has called us. And we're seeking to live in a way that gives him all the honor and all the glory. After all, he is our heavenly Father. He is our master. How much more should we live in ways to show him the honor that he deserves? Friends, let's examine our lives and be honest with where we are at. Confess and repent where we need to. Seek to make his name known. And one more thing that, that is important to take note of uh, in this verse is, is really what it isn't saying. That line there, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Now it could be easy to read this as some have done and walk away thinking that it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter whether you're a Buddhist or Hindu, whether you're a Brahmin or a, a New Age spiritualist. This shows us that it's all focused on the same higher power because everything is going to be ultimately directed towards the Lord. Every place in uh, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. So we all end up in the same place, right? We're all ultimately worshiping the same God, just taking different routes to get there. No, no, rather what this reminds us is not this kind of universalism that we're seeing here. It rather reminds us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is the Lord. Whether have they repented and put their faith and trust in Him and will spend an eternity with Him, or whether they have rejected Him and will spend an eternity apart from Him, they will bow down before the Lord. From this forward-looking hope, Malachi contrasts with the priest's sacrifices. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. In a sense, they're kind of saying, well, the table's already polluted. So what's the problem? We're just going with what we're inherited. It's not our fault. But the Lord has given his people his standard. He has revealed himself through his word. There is no excuse. We are to obey the Lord. These people were to obey the Lord and the priests are the ones who, to, who are to be setting the example. But once again, we see another objection. Verse 13, but you say, what a weariness this is. And you snorted it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? God's calling them out for their boredom and, and, and laziness. He says, you're looking at me with contempt. You presume my favor, but look at the offerings that you bring to me. You take them by violence. You bring the lame, the sick. Why should I accept that? Why should the Lord accept that? No, no, God is calling them to a higher standard because they were to be holy as he is holy. They were to honor him as the Lord. Our section finishes off with a warning. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. 
The firstborn male was to be the best, set aside for the Lord. The one who attempted to cheat God when bringing an offering was to be cursed. This was no empty threat. And we saw a glimpse of it in Acts with Ananias and Sapphira. Now the man who failed to treat God with the appropriate honor and respect would not go unpunished. Friends, as we finish off today, I'll be honest, these first 14 verses can feel a little overwhelming. This is heavy. This, this is a burden. After all, that's, that's the warning that this letter gives us. And in one sense, we should be feeling the weight. We should be feeling this burden. But while we feel this, and, and perhaps we need to walk away and reflect on our own lives, maybe even repent where we need to, it would be wrong for us to walk away without hope. Where verse 14 warns the one who was to be cursed for not offering the firstborn male of his flock, we see God who has offered his son, the perfect lamb without spot, without blemish, offered up as a sacrifice on our behalf. Redeemer Church, as you leave here today, leave with the hope and the joy of the one who is our perfect sacrifice. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we come to you feeling the weight of this passage, feeling the weight of these warnings, of these charges. Oh Lord, how many of these things could be directed to us? Lord, we pray that you would forgive us. But Father God, even as we we, we consider these, these truths, even as we consider the teaching of your word, oh Lord, we rejoice knowing that there was a perfect sacrifice. Christ who gave himself up for us, who, who bore the penalty, who hung on the cross saying, it is finished, it is done. Father, may we leave here today with the joy, with the hope, looking to Christ, looking to that perfect sacrifice, knowing that in him, in his perfect life, in his perfect death and resurrection, we have an eternal hope that is focused on you, where we will spend an eternity gazing upon you, singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Oh, Father, may we leave with this joy. May we leave with this hope even today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.